This is a 3CR community radio podcast. In Psychedelia is broadcast every Sunday from 2pm. For more info on anything you hear in the show, head to 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page. Good afternoon and welcome to Encyclopedia on this Sunday afternoon. Uh, we have plenty coming up in the show today, so we're not going to muck around too much at all. Uh, Ash, how are you doing today? Oh, pretty good, mate. Pretty good. Now, it's been a bit of a busy week for um, drug uh, policy this week. <laughs> It, it has been. I, I got so exhausted uh, by the end of it. I've, I've fallen asleep on my couch at like eight <laughs> o'clock the last two nights. Oh, that's all right. A good good uh, early night's sleep is uh, good for the, uh, the the costrels. Don't ask what that is. Costrels. <laughs> uh, on Wednesday, uh, the nineteenth, it was Bicycle Day, the celebration of the anniversary of the discovery of the psychedelic effects of LSD by Albert Hoffman, uh, Sandoz. Uh, chemist uh, back in 1943 was when he discovered that and the Australian Psychedelic Society uh, put on a uh, an evening uh, screening the documentary The Sunshine Makers all about uh, Nick Sands and Tim Scully uh, who were the uh, people that made a lot of the LSD that was going around the US in the uh, 1960s. Uh, what did you think of the movie Ash? I thought it was fantastic um, I thought it was uh was Nick Sands, I think, that um, was particularly inspiring. Like at the end of the movie, you know, he's just like, I'm a warrior for peace. I can take <laughs> it. You can lock me up. You can do whatever. I can take it. And there was a lot of footage of him um, doing naked yoga. Uh, as well. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, you can find The Sunshine Makers on Netflix as well if you uh, have Netflix. Uh, so thank you to the Australian Psychedelic Society for that one. Uh, the 20th of April is uh, the global day of celebration for uh, cannabis, uh, 420, uh, if you've heard the number. And just to allay any myths as well there's a lot of stories that get told about this and i saw in the age article um on the 420 celebrations in melbourne um a man was talking about all these stories it is actually known that most of those are false most of the stories about it being a police uh, frequency thing for cannabis possession or whatever um what it seems to be traced uh, able to be traced back to is um some students at i think it was a, col- a, a university or college in um san francisco and basically just using um that number all that time uh, for uh, whatever they were doing then. But, you know, these these things t- get a bit of a life of their own. They turn into a mythology of their own, um, and then people don't think it matters where it came from anymore. Um, I don't know. Maybe it does. Anyway, so we were at the um, the free cannabis community uh, rally that uh, occurred uh, at Flagstaff Gardens. Yeah, it was really good. The, the turnout was a bit bigger than maybe I thought. I thought the, um, I guess the threat of the police enforcing, uh, you know, drug drug laws there might scare a few people off. But um, no, there was a there was a really good turnout. Bunch of fun people, some music. Um, I think they sold so many snags they ran out. Um, so yeah, it was all around. It was pretty good. The police did make a few um, ar- uh, arrests, I guess, and, and like gave some people some um, uh, cautions, official cautions. Uh, but all in all, that the relationship between that community and the police is still seems to be mostly a positive one. And it, uh, yeah, I think the, there were only about five arrests or something like that. Yeah. But uh, uh, to be fair, some people were, were quite brazen uh, well, with I, police in in high vis vests. They're quite clear where they are. I, I did joke about this on you know a couple of people i was like i don't think you got caught 
for having cannabis. I think you got caught for being so baked you couldn't see the cops coming in high-vis vests from like 100 metres away. So, I, yeah, it, w- it was a little, um, you know, the, you, the there's a bit of sense. still do can... enforce the law and cannabis at this time is still an illegal substance to consume in public. Uh, so. But it's uh, something I noticed at the start of the year, the Herald Sun was all on their high horse um, about, oh, no, all the, these people are um, uh, smoking cannabis in the park because, of course, the, the 420 rallies uh, put on by Free Cannabis uh, uh, Victoria happen about once a month during summer and they take a break during winter because it's a little bit chillier. Um, so this is, and this has been going on for years. Um, but the Herald Sun went, oh my God, this is happening. Um, and then when the community responded and said, okay, at our next picnic, we're not going to um, light up. Uh, the Herald Sun claimed, oh, paranoid pot smokers don't want to light up. In fr-. They're just uh, like, I'm sorry for the language here, but dickheads. Whoever that reporter was, complete dickhead. Because uh, they were calling people paranoid for doing something that was a completely rational response to the threat of arrest, drug diversions, of going through the stupid uh, legal system that exists around uh, cannabis. Mm. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> uh, and what else has been going on this week? We, we'll jump into some uh, news without the news intro. So I think, well, the cannabis, uh, uh, we're just going to jump straight into some news, are we? we okay, sure are, so yeah. um, the, the cannabis story uh, got reported in some publications, some of them quite positive. Um, I think it was Junkie uh, magazine, that's Junkie double E. Um, and uh, they had a story that, um, you know, it was a bit of a, it, it was kind of the story that Matt's been trying to tell with these picnics of the ordinary people who consume cannabis. So they had a lot of comments from um, people at the event that just said that they, uh, consume cannabis for various reasons, including one uh, worker from the office blocks ne- nearby that just kind of stumbled across it and he was sitting there smoking a cigarette saying, well, this is legal, this is insane, my cigarette is legal and these people who are sitting here not disturbing anyone particularly are breaking the law. So, um, you know, it was good to see a bit more positive reporting around it. Um, obviously, globally, there's a, there's a lot going on with Canada shifting position. Um, I guess for just a little bit of maybe more depressing news from the United States on the cannabis front, um, the Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly had announced this week that the Trump administration would use marijuana possession as a reason for deporting immigrants. Um, ICE, which is uh, the name of the, I guess, the border you know, Homeland Security Organization, <laughs> not the, not the you know, common term for methamphetamine here. Um, ICE will continue to use marijuana possession, distribution and convictions as essential elements as they build their deportation removal apprehension packages for targeted operations against illegal aliens living in the United States. And I think having seen what happens with uh, drug prohibition, we kind of know what that means. There's certain communities that are going to be targeted um, and it's just another weapon that they can use to try and enforce, uh, I guess, Trump's, you know, some would say racist, I would probably join them in that, um, racist immigration policies. So uh, some of the states have responded, particularly in California. The Drug Policy Alliance has been working with them to craft legislation to basically protect the integrity of state laws um, that would prohibit certain institutions from working with the federal government on these kinds of cases because California is now legalized cannabis. Um, and so it, it's a real sort of slap in the face to the state's rights, which is a big element of politics in the US, for the federal government to 
enforce a federal violation that's not actually illegal in that state. So essentially, you know, Mexicans, for example, that have been living in the United States for some time could be doing something perfectly legal and be targeted by these, you know, uh, fascist border control people and, um, <laughs> you know, be removed from the country, essentially. So mm. it's a bit of a tension between the states and the federal government right now in the United States. That, um, story of the United States right now. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, Vault Face, that's V-O-L-T-E face.me. Uh, they're a website from the UK that uh, cover drug po- uh, drug policy issues and also make submissions uh, to government uh, on drug policy. And uh, they've um, uh, published an article, What's Happening in the UK Drug-Wise?, uh, uh, with um, quite a look, especially a, a careful look at what's happened since the UK introduced and passed the Psychoactive Substances Act uh, near, nearly a year ago. Uh, just to bring you up to speed, the Psychoactive Substances Act uh, in the UK is an act that uh, seeks to ban any substance that is considered psychoactive, uh, which is very broadly defined as uh, basically anything that um, uh, causes uh, a alteration to various modes of, uh, of consciousness, uh, except for a number of exemptions and of course the exemptions um, you, you'll probably uh, be able to guess but things like caffeine, nicotine alcohol, uh, the drugs that are considered legitimate apparently by uh, governments uh, and, and the other ones are not considered legitimate. Now this is also uh, not to uh, take away from the drugs that are already prohibited, this is on top of that. So the Psychoactive Substances Act uh, is meant to be a uh, uh, an act that sort of acts uh it sort of tries to go with guilt before innocence, but not on people, but on a substance. So a substance that um, hasn't been looked at by the law yet, doesn't isn't understood at all, if it has a psychoactive effect, then it's guilty of committing crimes against humanity or something like that. I, look, that's not the official terms. I, I'm just I, I think to really understand the picture of this, it means that any drug that had zero side effects, zero risk of harm, and produced a pleasurable effect in 100% of people is, by definition, illegal. Exactly. Before it's discovered. So this... Uh, and this act is very similar to a recently introduced bill in Victoria, which will be discussed uh, when Parliament resumes sitting in May. Uh, the bill is the Drugs, Poisons and Controlled Substances Miscellaneous Amendment uh, Bill. 2017, and it seeks to more or less do the same. The Victorian government claims that it's all about cracking down on synthetic drugs, uh, but it, that's a very, first of all, anti-scientific thing to say because most drugs are synthetic. It's it's, it's the rhetoric, rhetoric of the situation. They're concerned about the new drugs that are out there, so their solution is to do the same thing that they've done with all the other drugs, uh, which, uh, if you'll notice, we of course don't have any issues with heroin or methamphetamine because they're prohibited, and people don't do things that are prohibited, so obviously that that response works. So let's do. I'm being sarcastic. Uh, in in the UK, what they've uh, what they've seen is that. Um uh, people, uh, a number of people have moved away from the novel psychoactive substances. So in that um, respect, the legislation has worked to move them onto other substances, but that's what's happened. They've moved on to other substances, back to more traditional substances like uh, MDMA, ketamine, cannabis, heroin, methamphetamine, etc. And what uh, what they saw was there was a low uh, lower point in the uh, demand of these drugs uh, a couple of years back, and that has spiked right back up. Uh, and that's largely... Uh, said to be because of these laws. Um, uh, but they've also seen that a number of uh, vulnerable people, including homeless people and prisoners, are still using novel psychoactive substances and they're having to find them from even shadier sources. And in the UK, uh, they're calling it a zombie epidemic, which is a terrible thing to say. Let's uh, not forget that these are humans that we're talking about, not an episode of Walking Dead. Uh, but uh, this is the sort of language that they're using to dehumanise people uh, and to... Uh, 
you know, throw away their problem, not have to deal with it. Oh, they're, they're zombies, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, it's on vaultface.me if you want to read the whole, whole article. How are we going for time? We've got time for two more? Yeah. Okay, um, very quickly from Colorado, a bit of a look at what happens um, in a legal framework. There's uh, an, a duo... Um, Griper and Lotz, I imagine that's their last names, um, started an organization called the Marijuana Education Initiative in 2015. And this was in response to um, the change in youth attitudes towards cannabis in a legal environment. There was a lot of people that were perceiving it as harmless um, and like a risk-free herb that was, you know, there's all these healing elements to it, which is a bit of misconception. It still comes with some risks, as do most substances. Um, so they've taken a evidence-based approach into schools and working with young people to really... Um, I'll, I'll just grab a quote from the bottom of the article. The importance of talking to teens about the risk of recreational adolescent marijuana use cannot be overstated. Putting the most current research-based information in the hands of parents, mentors and educators opens the door to helping adolescents make informed decisions about marijuana. A well-informed youth is an empowered youth. Um, and that's a similar approach to SSDP, you know, just provide the information and people will make better choices. Exactly. Um, we've got about uh, 20 more seconds if you've got a 20 real more quick seconds. story. <laughs> well, very quickly, um, we might come back to it at the end of the show. The uh, story that we um, anticipated last week with the announcement of the Sniffer Dog program targeting Melbourne's nightlife has begun last night. There were 20 arrests in the South Yarra area along Chapel Street. Um, and the sniffer dogs were used there. 16 people received a caution slash diversion. And um, I think 127 people were questioned and, and some vehicles searched as well. So that operation will be running Saturday nights right through until August. And um, I expect we'll see a bit more of a response from the community for that. We'll be keeping our eye on that. For any more information on any of the stories that you hear, you can find In Psychedelia on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, and you can also subscribe to our podcast at 3cr.org.au. Uh, coming up next, we will be speaking... Uh, actually, Mel and Dean from the Australian Psychedelic Society are at the psychedelic science conference in oakland california on right now uh this weekend uh you can keep up to date by following the australian psychedelic uh, psychedelic society on facebook and twitter and they caught up with dr ben sessa who is working toward a phd in mdma psychotherapy uh, ben will be in australia in december uh, for the 2017 ega conference tickets are on sale now at entheo.net <laughs> In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. .au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Right now on In Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, Mel and Dean from the Australian Psychedelic Society speaking with Dr. You're ben all sitting Cesar. here with myself, Dean, and Melissa from Hi. the Australian Psychedelic Society. Uh, we're at the Psychedelic Science Conference here in Oakland, California. Uh, the biggest meeting of psychedelic science that's held once every three, four years. 
Um, and we're sitting here today with uh, Ben Sessa. So welcome, Ben. Hi. Thanks yes. for having me. Thanks ben, for joining us. Thank you. Ben is a research fellow at Imperial College London, the University of Bristol and Cardiff University, and in private practice, a child and adult psychiatrist specialising in addiction. Thank you so much for coming, Ben. Thank you. My first question is, what is it that inspired you to first become interested in psychedelic research? Okay, um, there's really two separate streams that came together to take me into psychedelics. First was just personal experience of psychedelics um, in my youth and the excitement of the psychedelic culture and psychedelic writing and psychedelic music and the rave scene and the festival scene. So what, what, what year are we talking about? Well, I was 18 in 1990, okay. so, so right at the peak of the rave times. Mm. Yeah, so... But before then, I, would, I'd, I'd, I was interested in all the literature, so I was always into the beat poetry and Kerouac and Artie Lang and Aldous Huxley and all of that stuff. And so I kind of came at it from quite an academic literary level at that point, then got into raving and all of the partying mm. stuff. Then, um, became, uh, then went to medical school and became a medical doctor and specialised in adolescent, men, child and adolescent mental health. And then what happened is over the years of treating my patients with traditional treatments, it became more and more apparent to me that the treatments we use in psychiatry are insufficient mm. and leave a lot of people, especially people with trauma, child and adolescent trauma, untreated. Mm. Um, it, it's pretty clear that a lot of the treatments, certainly the pharmacy treatments and a lot of the psychotherapies, they paper over the cracks. They... Mm mask the symptoms, which is useful, makes people feel a bit better to take antidepressants and not so, not so low, but it doesn't get to the core root. And so what really drives me in the psychedelic research um, field is I really see these treatments as new and innovative and exactly what psychiatry needs. Yeah. So it offers a new solution for psychiatry, and what, for such a long time the current drugs haven't been producing the results you feel. Yeah, I think psychiatry has become a palliative care field, which is really poor. You know, if you're, if you're diagnosed with severe anxiety or neurosis problems or PTSD or addictions in your 20s or 30s because of severe child abuse and trauma, there's a pretty good chance you'll be going back to your psychiatrist in your 60s or 70s. Yeah, so and that's a chronic illness. As it's a chronic illness. a chronic illness. And psychiatrists work in this, in this kind of atmosphere of we are palliative care doctors. Yeah. We don't cure. We don't use the cure word in psychiatry. We sort of use the, this might help you feel a bit better. Now, I don't think that's good enough, you know. And I think other, other fields of medicine wouldn't accept that level of learned mm. helplessness. So why so do we have not. to? Yeah, and it's even it's like um, I have heard you mention that you see MDMA as psychiatry's antibiotic, and I guess you know prior to antibiotics, we were just managing illnesses that right now we can cure with yeah. a short period of time. If previously would it resulted in a long death. Yeah. Can you expand on what you meant by that statement? Yeah. So with that analogy, it's a couple of things. Firstly, if we go back to say 19th century general medicine. Humanity was losing the battle to the infectious diseases. Mm. We were very good at epidemiology and categorizing and diagnosing smallpox and TB and all of the post-operative infections, but we were losing the battle. We could treat them symptomatically, mm. but we didn't know about the microorganisms and we didn't have antibiotics. Then in the early 20th century, discovered the antibiotics, started winning that battle. 
I think we're in a similar place in psychiatry today. We write these oh, the huge, DSM, we're very good at categorizing volumes, we? DSM, ICD. Uh, we, we have excellent epidemiology in psychiatry. We know who gets depression, who gets anxiety, who gets addictions, who has lifelong mental health problems. And we even know the cause, trauma. But we are giving these maintenance therapies, but not the antibiotic. So taking SSRIs for things like PTSD, it's like taking an aspirin if you have an infection. You know, if you've got an infection, you can take aspirin or paracetamol, lowers the temperature, makes you feel a bit better, mm. but it's not an antibiotic. Yeah. It doesn't get the bug. Mm. What I feel the psychedelic therapies do, and particularly MDMA, is it gives you, for the first time in psychiatry, a tool to actually go into the base trauma, deal with that, resolve it, overcome it, and then you're cured. I mean, mm. we don't use the cure word. It's weird, yeah. but yeah, so maybe we should. So yeah. how does that work then? Like, So how do you see MDMA and psilocybin, for example, LSD, being able to enable that sort of change? How, do, how does it get you down into the cure? I think MDMA in particular, it's its capacity to allow you to be with the trauma without being overwhelmed by the negative affect. Mm. So if you think about it, if you've had some horrific childhood experience, by the time you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you've built up years and years of defense and resistance. You'll do anything but think about that night when you were six years old. Mm. You'll become a heroin addict, an alcoholic, You'll self-harm, you'll attempt suicide, you'll be in and out of hospital, you'll take all the pharmacy that's thrown your way, but you, won't, you don't want to go there to that moment because mm. the moment the therapist says, tell me about your rape, you're out the door, you flee. Yeah. And that's why we have a 50% treatment resistance in PTSD. You know, 50% of people just do not get better. Mm. And it's because they can't engage with the specific index event. What MDMA in particular does is you could take the medicine with the therapist in that context and for the first time in your life, after carrying this in your head for 30 years, you can say, my God, I can, I can talk about that. God, it must be a huge relief to mm. even yeah. be able to talk about it. And, think and about it's, it. not, it's not ecstasy, you know, it's not a beautiful euphoric experience. It's yeah. still difficult trauma-focused psychotherapy. Yeah. But with, I see MDMA as this kind of life jacket mm. that you wear that gives you just enough strength to do the work. Where normally you can't. So that really is a breakthrough. Yeah. yeah um, I guess when the present moment becomes too painful to bear, like it does in trauma, mm. you need something to be able to make the present moment more comfortable and more acceptable. Is that what MDMA yeah, does? Yeah, it, it's about, it gives you the power to be there and not escape. Yeah. Which is what normally people do. You know, they'll do anything to not go to those memories. Mm. But what MDMA does is it provides such a powerful sense of loving kindness um, from an emotional point of view that the patient can actually be with the trauma long yeah. enough to do some psychotherapy and talk it through. So and the crucial thing is it works and then lasts. Yeah. You don't have to keep taking it. Um, when you take the, the, the medicine as part of a, a course of psychotherapy, the therapy may be, say, 10 or 12 weeks or something like that, mm. and you'll take the medicine once, twice, maybe three times in that course and then you get to the end of the course and you've made great resolutions yeah so what is it exactly so when they're able to relive the trauma and be with it what is it exactly about that that helps uh, change their view about the trauma that's a really good question because in a way in the way I don't think it's particularly magical mm. it's simply being able to do that trauma work yeah and so if you think about what I think it moves people from the 50% that can't do the trauma work into the other 50% who can. Mm. So if you think about normal 
trauma-focused therapy for PTSD, and you're in the group that can help benefit from it, tell me about your rape, tell me about your pain, tell me about your childhood. Lots of tears, lots of pain, lots of distress. But over the weeks, you slowly resolve, rebrand, relabel, recognitively appraise the situation, and you come out of it a bit stronger. Mm. And that's fine. That's the 50% who can do it without MDMA. What I think MDMA does is it simply brings the other 50% into that group. Mm. It, it provides for the patient an opportunity to be with their trauma and do the therapy where previously they've just not been able to engage. Yeah. So comparing that to, say, psilocybin, for example, how would the mechanism of psilocybin differ to MDMA when we're dealing with... Uh, it might not be necessarily used for post-traumatic stress disorder, but, say, dealing with a depression or mm. a severe anxiety. Mm. How, how would you say the mechanisms differ in a mm. psychotherapeutic sense? And psilocybin being the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Yeah. Um, so MDMA is, is my preferred tool because I think it just ticks so many of these other boxes. But um, what classical psychedelics do, primarily they're these 5-HT2A partial agonists. Yeah. And so what they provide is this experience of opening up new neural networks, seeing things in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, when, when drugs like this are used recreationally and dangerously, this can be a frightening experience. But th- if this is done in the context of a therapeutic relationship, um, you know, seeing things in a new way is a really good thing. Um, you know, we talk about with uh, psychedelics the idea of ego dissolution, the idea of stripping away these layers by how we define ourselves, um, which, of course, can be a frightening thing if you're taking the drug recreationally and you're, and you're not prepared for but it. But if, de- if you're, say, someone who's severely and chronically depressed, the way you look at yourself is not a good thing anyway. Absolutely. So if the label you hang around yourself is, I am useless, I am worthless, mm. I am unloved, I am unlovable, my parents didn't want me, I may as well be a heroin addict or an alcoholic, mm. um, promiscuous sex, violence, self-harm, all the externalising behaviour that goes with not wanting to carry your label. Mm. The idea of using a tool that allows you to strip away these labels, when that's done in a controlled setting, to then rebuild the, rebrand the person again. Mm. Um, So that's one of the mechanisms. I think the other mechanism of all psychedelic therapies is just providing that patient with an experience of an attachment relationship with those Mm. therapists. Because I look at my patients, my adult patients, with addictions, they've never... They've, they've never, they have no positive attachments in their life, never had. Mm. You know, their parents rejected them, they were bullied at school, they then found their way into the drug community and they're living hand-to-mouth on the, mm. with, with addictive substances. They've never had that opportunity to have a bonding attachment experience with mm. people who care about them and love them. And yeah. it, it is a kind of love. So transference, you would see, is a major part of this sort of therapeutic... It's therapy. really important, and, and patients say that. They say, you know, I just especially with MDMA, you know, I didn't know I had it in me to have this feeling. You know, I've heard people say in in the training that we've done, um, you know, people have talked about the word love, and I've kind of used it because I understand you're supposed to, and you're supposed to say that to your partner, but I've never really felt it. Mm. And now I can, I've felt what it was like on MDMA, and 
Yes, it was a drug-induced transient experience, so you could argue, well, it's just an illusion, you're just high. But actually, it doesn't work like that. It, it, it gives them the permission to have that feeling for the first time in their life. And now they can remember that feeling. They too. can now they remember can know, it. And now, now every they, time they say love, they have a thing to refer absolutely. to. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, those of us, um, I'm assuming you guys are very stable people who um, have had lovely experiences. When we use the word love, we were mm. thinking about our parents and our partners and, mm. and the lovely people in our lives. But if we haven't had those experiences, it's hard to to say that that's as an experience you, you can describe. But mm. the point about the psychedelic therapies is it does provide this in a transient um, setting like that, but it generalizes, that's the point, mm. it lasts. Yeah. Mm, so this resetting of the self, um, being able to remove yourself from your current attachments and start from a fresh place is key to the psychedelic healing yeah. potential. Um, I actually remember a story that you spoke of of your experience of being a participant in one of the trials where you experienced this sensation. Can you hmm. describe for us what that was like? Yeah. I mean, in the last 10 years, I've been both a participant and a study doctor administering drugs um, on studies with MDMA, ketamine, LSD, psilocybin, and DMT. So <laughs> I've, I can. it's nice that I can sort of put my hand up and say I've legally taken yeah, all of Yeah, I can't say drugs. many people have been on both sides of that fence. I don't think there's anyone else that's done all of the studies. Mm. So I think I'm kind of unique because various people have done one or two of them, but I've, I've done them all. Mm. They obviously just push me to the front of the queue because I'm a <laughs> sucker. Um, but, yeah, one of the, say, this ego dissolution experience, and this is with intravenous uh, psilocybin in a scanner, and... Um, I, that was the most intense experience. I just I was lying in the scanner, and you know this an MRI scanner is the very worst place to take it. You know you're you've got a, a needle in one arm, you've got a plastic tube up your nose, you've got straps across oh. your chest, you're strapped to a metal tray. You're strapped down. Yeah, because oh. they're measuring your your chest movements in a tube. Everyone else is 15 feet away behind a piece of lead or behind glass. This is a thing and of nightmares. You're lying in this enclosed tube with this machine going, you know, it, it makes dubstep sound really nice. <laughs> and then they inject the drug. And I had this experience of... But, uh, intravenous D, um, psilocybin is a bit like DMT. It's instantaneous. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's mm. sort of within 30 seconds, 60 seconds, you're from baseline to, like, tripping oh, yeah. as hard as you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And I had this experience of lying in there, and I just thought, right, it, this is getting really, really frightening. It's really scary. What's going on? And I was trying to ground myself, and I was saying, right, I'm Ben. I'm a doctor. I've got a wife. I've got three kids. I'm in Cardiff. I'm in a scanner. It's okay. And then it's like, okay, I'm Ben, uh, but I'm not sure where I am, but I know who I am, <laughs> but I don't know what's going on. Oh. And then it's like, okay, I don't know who I am, but I know I'm just some bloke lying in the scanner. I've had some assignment. And then it's like, and then it was... Okay, I'm not what I don't have a body. I'm not really a person, but I'm some kind of notion floating somewhere. And then I'm not even floating because there is no inside or outside or up or down. There's no space or time. Everything has completely dissolved and disappeared. And at that point, I was totally terrified, awestruck with fear. I felt like I was sort of on my knees facing God, like in this final judgment type thing. Mm. It was absolutely terrifying. And then I was suddenly filled with this. This, this realisation well if I've completely dissolved and all space and time has dissolved and nothing exists then what do I have to fear so it really was this sort of ego death type thing and then I was filled with this tremendous sense of bliss because I suddenly had this realisation when you strip everything away the fundamental particle that holds it all together is love 
Mm. It sounds really corny, but that's sort of what I was filled with, just this white light of love. And then slowly, it takes about 45 minutes with IV psilocybin, they dragged me out of the machine, I'm like a piece of jelly. You know, <laughs> the layers started coming back and I remembered who I was and where I am and what I'm doing. And I was just left with this tremendous sense of afterglow and, and a real strong sense of what an important tool for my patients. Because, you know, the labels I hang on myself are all really positive things. Mm. But if the labels I hang on myself are really nasty, negative things, then it's great to be able to peel them off and put them back again. Mm. Because you can put them back together the way you want them as well. Yeah, because, right? you know, when we use them in the, in the studies with the scanners, there's, there's a certain amount of support. But when you're doing it in therapeutically, in, in a clinical setting, you know, there's all the weeks of preparation, mm. there's all the integration sessions, there's all the work with the therapist. So it's, it's not just the drug experience, and that's mm. really important. Mm. You know, when people say, I'd like to take MDMA to heal my, he- my, my trauma, just taking the drug isn't going to do it. You've got to do it as part of a therapeutic program. Mm. Yeah, because planned. it's all, it's the planning, it's the preparation sessions, and it's particularly the integration sessions mm. that are so vital. So much of our experience is intangible. So much of what we perceive cannot be expressed as unspeakable. And yet, you know, when we communicate with one another and we we feel that we have connected and we think that we're understood, I think we have a feeling of almost spiritual, spiritual communion.
Australian glitch maestro white bear with inanimate incarnate on in psychedelia on 3cr community radio 855 am digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au right now we're hearing from dean and melissa from the australian psychedelic society who are currently attending the psychedelic science 2017 conference in oakland california and chatting with ben sessa That, pit, that putting back on of the layers afterwards. So, for, for instance, it sounds like you were in a pretty secure place yourself, so putting back on the layers wasn't such a traumatic or difficult experience for you necessarily. Yeah. But for other people, it was like when they've dissolved down to that sort of complete dissolution of the ego and when we're putting back on the layers, it forces them to sort of evaluate different layers in their life as they put them back on. Yeah. And that's when, as you say, the integration is important because mm. it, might, it might not happen there and then when you're putting yourself back together but mm. those things that you're thinking of then they might come up weeks later or days later and or months later and, and in a way even the psychedelic therapy when that comes to an end the, the the course it's then what do you do with your life and it's really about going forward with a new lifestyle mm. so i think the point about psychedelic therapy it's not just using the drug and it's not even just the course of therapy it's the immersion into a whole new lifestyle mm. you know do i need to be in this relationship in which I'm being exploited? Mm. Do I need to be using alcohol, high dose? Mm. You know, do I need to be chasing money? Um, so it, it's not like we're trying to turn everyone into hippies, mm. but I think there's a lot about the Western lifestyle that's very neurotic for people. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, a psychedelic drug is a really good way of just recognising that. I mean, you know, take LSD and wander around a supermarket, you'll... You'll laugh, won't you? Because you <laughs> yeah, recognise that ninety-eight percent of the stuff on the shelves is totally superfluous and not needed. Mm. Yet we surround ourselves with all of this bling, yeah. where almost all of it is superfluous. It's and, a distraction. Yeah, and the psychedelics are such a good tool for reminding us of the really fundamental things that, that link us together as people. There's mm. no distraction when you're under a psychedelic. You've got to attend to the really important things. It requires which, attention. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful experience. <laughs> Terrifying too, though. You know, it's terrifying. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it was blissful. It was absolutely terrible because we like our labels. Yeah. You know, it's scary to not know what your name is mm. or whether you have a body mm. or who you are or where you are. You know, these labels keep us together. Mm. But when it's done in a setting that you feel safe, then it's a valuable thing to do. Mm. You have the power to change your labels. Yeah. And change your perception of yourself, which is very powerful. Yeah. Something I, I think that has been unrecognised for a long time in our history and our understanding of psychology that's, that your states and your beliefs can change. Mm. And with your conscious control, you can be the driver. Yeah. It's very difficult, though, because, you know, in my work with children and attachment relationships is all about how rigid that becomes, yeah. how difficult to change. Yeah, well, So taking it back to you as... Uh, the other side of the research boundaries. You said you've been involved in a lot of studies with various different drugs. I'm wondering what you've got uh, <coughs> planned for the future or what you're involved in at the moment. Okay, so all of the studies that we've been doing for the last 10 years have been mechanistic studies, but what we're really doing now is moving on to clinical work with patients. Yeah. So we have two MDMA studies that we're hoping to start this year um, in the UK. One is in Cardiff, um, and that is a... Uh, imaging study with patients with PTSD yeah. and the others in Bristol mm. and that's with alcoholism so the Cardiff study is although we have a lot of data about um, how PTSD affects the brain in terms of the amygdala and prefrontal cortex 
And we have data about how MDMA affects the brain in healthy people with the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. What no one's ever done is take someone with PTSD, put them in a scanner, traumatize them, and then give them MDMA. Oh, wow. So that's what we're doing. So we're taking patients with PTSD, severe treatment-resistant PTSD, um, double-blind placebo-controlled study in an fMRI scanner, and while they're in there, we're going to read them back uh, descriptions of their trauma and really take them back there to expose them to the trauma and then test them with MDMA and placebo, hoping to see that MDMA uh, has a subjective reduction in fear response Mm. and also that we see the the scan data that shows reduction in amygdala response and an increase in prefrontal response. Yeah. So that's in Cardiff. Yeah, that sounds like a That's awesome. a very important study. That will be very revealing for the mechanisms. I think it's good because, you know, in a way, it's not necessary to get the licence for MDMA. Um, and actually, if you look at most of the drugs we use in psychiatry, they don't all go through that kind of thing. But I think it's just going to be really interesting because all of the, all of the groups that are saying MDMA therapy works for PTSD, mm. to be able to sh- show it with a bit of data that says, and this is exactly what happens in the brain mm. when people with PTSD take MDMA, yeah. I think that's really good. I mean, other people have scanned before and after therapy and looked at changes, but this will be the first study that induces the, the traumatic state under the influence of MDMA. Are you not worried about getting participants to get tied down in a scanner and relive their trauma? Mm. It's a really good question. So we've got a lot of safety measures in place, and it's you know that it's two therapists, a male female therapist pair are going to be running it, myself and a colleague. Yeah. So um, it, it's although we're not delivering therapy, yeah. it's we're going to be delivering a facilitative environment. Mm. So if we are inducing trauma. We can, we can manage that. I mean, also, if you think about it, these are people who live with trauma every yeah. day. And I'm assuming it's not their first time they've, you've relived the trauma with them, like you may have no, done we, before. No, we'd be doing some preparation yeah. sessions beforehand. Yeah. yeah, so I wouldn't just be um, going in blind. Well, the people who are in the control group have the opportunity to go through MDMA treatment too? Yeah, it's a okay. crossover. Yeah. So, the, so that we do 10 patients, uh, uh, 20 patients. They, they, they are randomised into MDMA or placebo first. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like an that's awesome right study. Then. Yeah. So that's good. And, that's, and then the Bristol study, um, which I'm particularly excited about, is with patients with alcohol dependence. Um, and we're, we're taking them after detox. So they have a medical detox with uh, a, a, a high-dose high benzo called chlordiazepoxide, which is a typical community detox regime. Yeah. They come out of that dry, so they've stopped drinking. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're kind of cured of the physical dependence. And then they go into our 10-week MDMA therapy course which is uh, weekly sessions and then two sessions with MDMA in the middle, spaced two or three weeks apart. Yeah. Um, now, this is an uh, open-label study. There's no control group because it's, it's really a kind of proof-of-concept study. Yeah, it's, no one's, it's first of its kind. Absolutely. Right? I mean, there's been no addiction studies with MDMA anywhere. So this is the oh, first ever addiction study with MDMA. Exciting. It's exciting and it might not work, you know, yeah. but we're just going to have a go. Um, one of the things, if you look at the addiction studies with psychedelics, whether it's you know Matt Johnson's nicotine study, all the Osman stuff in the fifties and sixties, mm. Kropitsky with ketamine, um, Bogan shots with alcohol, and all the work that Griffith's done, what they've all found is the greater therapeutic effect comes from the higher mystical spiritual yes. experience. Yeah. That sense of ego death. Yeah. So whether that's with LSD or psilocybin or with ketamine, so that is not so pronounced with MDMA. You know, mm. MDMA has a different sort of effect, but it, it, it's not really known for its mystical spiritual effects. Mm. About 10 to 15% of people taking first 
time threshold MDMA will describe spiritual effects, but that's in comparison to the 80 or 90 percent that will say that with the classical. So that bit is sort of missing. Yeah. But what what is there is the immense effects on trauma. Yeah. And for my work in addictions, 98% of my patients with addictions to whatever substance have had a childhood traumatic history. Yeah. So it's a kind of combination of those two ideas to sort of think, well, this could work. Yeah. It's definitely worth exploring. Yeah. I am curious, um, once that has been studied, once we know the changes that occur with MDMA alone, if something like the combination of MDMA and a psychedelic could be then studied? Well, <laughs> down the line, there are so many potential opportunities. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the moment, I mean, that's, that's, it's a good question because the other thing about this is we're broadening MDMA out a bit away from PTSD. Mm. I mean, we've got a work. It works work so well with, with PTSD autism. for that one yeah. particular reason. So it is interesting to see if it can yeah. work in other mechanisms. And actually, as a psychiatrist, if you ask any psychiatrist, sort of trauma seems to underlie so much of psychiatry, whatever mm. the diagnosis. So we can move away from pure PTSD as a diagnosis with so MDMA. What's your, what's your sort of prediction then with this study? Because it is a different mechanism. And as you say, it doesn't bring the mystical experiences so much. So what are you sort of expecting? Well... Because it's an open-label study and primarily a feasibility and safety study, the main thing we really want to get out of it is that everyone safely takes MDMA and nobody yeah. dies. and all those, That's the kind of data that, that we're going with. Now, if a few of them don't drink as much at the end of it, that's a bonus, mm. but that's not really our major outcome. Yeah. Um, but we do think they'll, that it'll work. We think it'll be a very powerful study to help people not to drink. Mm. I mean, part of the reason we chose alcohol is because alcohol... Well, part, one reason is that alcohol is so prevalent mm. um, in the UK it's just a horrendous mm. situation yeah. I don't know what it's like in Australia it's but in Australia. really it's just off the scale now yeah. so it's, it's, it's a very important problem and the other reason is the treatments are pretty poor yeah. you know the, the relapse rates post detox at three years are about 80% 90% yeah. if you are a daily dependent drinker and you go through a course of whatever AA CBT mm. all of this 90% have relapsed within three years. Yeah. That's an outrageous statistic. Yeah. So we figured if we can do any better than that, we're going to get good results. Yeah. And if your personal experience with your patients and the percentage of people with trauma, then it's likely to have a high mm. impact as yes. well. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's the unresolved trauma that leads to the, rel to the relapse. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you know they will have gone on the course, they'll have got dry, they've gone to AA, mm. and then something emotional will happen that will trigger the traumatic experience again. Yeah. And so the hope is that MDMA is going to provide them with a, a, a stronger grounding. So how much of a percentage of your patients would you say, because from my views on addiction and from my experience with knowing people with addiction, there is a lot of people that suffer from trauma and try to escape from the reliving mm -hmm. of trauma or any of the symptoms that come along with um, suffering from trauma. But there's also a high percentage of people or a percentage of people that have an existential sort of escape. So people that aren't really living an authentic life, they don't really know what they want to do, they're bored and they're just, it's mm -hmm. like they, they just, rather than dealing with facing up to what they want to do with their life, they'll sort of escape into drugs as yeah. well or alcohol. And alcohol is, it's the devil's, it's the devil's drug. Yeah. It's like people will start when they're a teenager drinking on the weekends and then all of a sudden they might yeah. go into a job they're not happy with and all of a sudden yeah. they're drinking every day to escape. Well, it's interesting because I don't see a big distinction between those two groups because yeah. when you really dig down into those people, I mean, 
who say there isn't severe childhood trauma, there'll be some kind of issues in the childhood. That's mm-hmm. what I've found. Okay. So, of course, there's the severe traumas that sort of hit the radar for social services, like physical abuse and sexual abuse. Mm. But my experience in psychiatry has been that the emotional abuse mm. and the neglect, the insidious, small experiences of childhood that were very negative mm. are extremely damaging, much more so than we think. And we think about child abuse and we mm. think about the, the biggies. Yeah. But actually, if you're a child growing up in a family, you sort of feel, I, all of my patients, you know, some of them when I talk to them about their childhood, they'll say, yeah, I was physically abused or sexually abused. Others will say, I, none of that happened, but I just, I don't think my mum ever wanted me. Yeah. I never felt as good as my brother. I don't think my yeah. dad really liked me. They never really played with me. They never really mm. praised me. I always felt as if I was in the way. So I think that that kind of trauma, that kind of child abuse, often goes under the radar. Mm. But when you look at lifelong mental health problems and addictions, I think it's very, very high, if not 100%. Yes. Yeah. Now, I think one of the things about addictive drugs like alcohol or other drugs like cocaine or heroin is, of course, anybody, if you take them enough, can become physically addictive, mm. uh, addicted to them. But the majority of us um, just don't because the other things in our lives outweigh them. Mm. So if I was to use a drug like alcohol or cocaine um, or cannabis or any kind of drug on a Friday or Saturday night, come Sunday night, I want to stop. Yeah, you've, because got, you've got things important. I've got my Monday. family. I want to go to work on Monday. Mm. I, I value my job. I like my house. I like mm. my car. I like my life. And, yeah. and I've got all these positive things. If I was living in some terrible circumstances with no opportunity, no money, no job, no mm. education, no employment, may as well be drinking another pint at 9am on Monday morning. Yeah. So actually, although the substances themselves are addictive, addiction it has nothing to do with substances, and mm. this is what's interesting, and I say this to my patients, you know, the drugs are a red herring. Yeah. Addiction is a psychological state of mind that emerges very early in life as a result of the attachment relationship. Well, the drugs are just their personal medicine, really. They're just the catalyst, and if you've had a crummy life, and then someone at 14 hands you a crack pipe, you're going to go for it. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I'm talking very black and white here, and of course yeah. there's a whole shade of grey, but that does tend to be my experience with my patients. Mm. Addiction, addiction is about a psychosocial state of mind. So psychedelics aren't going to change the environment of what these people are in, but it will change potentially their reactions and their interpretations of their environment, which may enable them to move out of it. Or Absolutely, ones. because one of the problems with um, these environments in childhood and early adolescence is you then tend to recreate them throughout your life. People then to, you know, people who are abused as children tend to drift into exploitative relationships. Mm. You'd think there'd be a sort of default setting in the brain that sort of says, I've had a crummy childhood, but now I know I'm not going to do that as an adult. Yeah. But unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. The way attachment and development and developmental psychology works is the experiences you have in childhood become the blueprint for how you run your life. Mm. It's a real design fault in the brain. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that is not functional. Um, on a lighter note, um, I have a question for you. On a lighter note, <laughs> if you could, and it can be related to this, in fact, though, if you could create a meme or a viral thought that you could spread throughout humanity, what would it be? Wow. Um, to do with psychedelics. Anything you want. Well, if it's anything, then it's obviously be kind to people. Mm. I mean, that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah. 
I mean, because that would stop all the trauma, that would stop everything else if your parents were actually kind to you, if your friends... I mean, to give you a slightly more sophisticated answer based on my work with developmental psychology, I guess it would be the world is a lovely place. And if you look out onto the world and you see pain, exploitation, people who want to cheat and lie and hurt you, you're wrong. Sounds very arrogant, but you're wrong. Most people everywhere are, are, are really nice. Mm. Almost everyone is lovely. Mm. Almost everyone you can trust. Mm. Almost everyone wants to help other people. I truly believe that's true. Yeah. And if you look out on the world and you don't see that, it's probably because you've made inferences about the world through what happened to you when you were little. Yeah. And when you're little, you build up this blueprint that then sticks. So you can reboot that narrative. Mm. You can. You just need to have enough positive experiences. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah. That is I, a good I, one. I agree. I, I think that if also if you have experienced pain and you expect negativity from the world, you will actually find it. Yeah. Our brains are very good at pattern recognition. It does, and it, yeah, it's a defense mechanism, and why not? Because, and I say this, say when I'm seeing with a teenager, you know, I go to see them in the ER department and the rest of the nurses and doctors are being very negative to this kid who's cutting herself, over, overdosing, and they'll say to me before I go in, oh, doctor, you know, don't talk to her, she's manipulating, she's attention-seeking, she's in here every night. I go up to this girl and I'll say, good for you for seeking attention. You deserve attention. You are a feral survivor of your childhood. If you didn't lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, you'd have died because no one was going to feed you when you were five years old. So you've turned into this young person or young adult who is now public enemy number one, lying, cheating, stealing, self-harming, overdosing, waste of space, and that's how people see this. And I say to them, you don't have to be like that because the world isn't, doesn't have to be as harsh as you think. Mm. It's just the experiences you've had. You deserve attention. You have my attention. Now let's talk. Yeah. That's a beautiful and inspiring message for, I'm sure, many people out there. Um, we're coming close to running out of time, but there's a couple of things that I sort of wanted to finish off, um, if possible. First of all, because we are here at Psychedelic Science 2017, um, I wanted to hear what, what talk or what topic you're most looking forward to seeing or have already seen since we're halfway through. God, do you know what? I have to confess I haven't seen anything yet. Oh, you're um, here with your I, family though, right? I'm here with my family and um, we've been having a few meetings and stuff. We had a meeting... Uh, with the MAPS team today about our MDMA for our study. So it's been more of a kind of business trip for me mm. so far. Um, but I've got my own talk today at 5 o'clock, which I'm looking forward to. Yep. Um, and so I'm going to catch some of the MDMA stuff that's going on today and tomorrow. Okay, awesome. Um, and I guess the last thing that we want to finish off with is just uh, plugging Entheogenesis Australis because you're coming out in December. Yeah. So yeah. this is our um, uh, biannual meeting that happens in Australia. It's in country Victoria and... This year we've got Ben uh, coming along, uh, Rick Dublin's also going to be there amongst a few other people and it's going to be a beautiful weekend where we get to camp and hang out and listen to psychedelic science and uh, have some fun as well. I am really looking forward to that. I've been to Australia before. Um, when I was like 18 I went backpacking around Australia like a lot of Brits do mm. for a few months. That was great fun but I haven't been back since then. So it's a great crowd over there. Um, and we, we do a com conference in the UK as well called Breaking Convention yep. and so it's nice to have this connectivity between the different conferences it is nice isn't it I yeah. love getting to know everyone from the different yeah. uh, psychedelic societies and researchers really good 
Well, mm. Thanks for uh, taking your time out, Ben. Well, thank thank you. you. Good luck with all of your work. Thank you, Mel and Dean from the Australian Psychedelic Society. More info at uh, the Australian Psychedelic Society Facebook page. Uh, we're just about out of time now. Ash, uh, any uh, final things? Uh, yes, um, for any of the libertarian-minded listeners, uh, liberty-focused people that might be in Sydney next weekend, I will be organising the drug policy panel at the uh, National Libertarian Freedman Conference. You can find more information at freedman17.org. It'll be a fantastic panel. I've got Dr. Alex Wodak as a keynote speaker, um, a local entrepreneur, Adam Miller, working in the cannabis industry here in Australia, uh, Colin Mendelson, a, a straight, one of Australia's leading tobacco addiction specialists. He's going to be speaking about vaping. And I have a short video from ArcView, the world's leading uh, cannabis market analytics company. So. For, more, for more information on all of that, uh, 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Encyclopedia program page and find us on social media. Uh, do get in contact with us. We do love to hear from you. Queering the Air is up next on 3CR. Enjoy your Sunday Arvo. This is Encyclopedia. Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. In Psychedelia, we'll be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. You've been listening to a 3CR community radio podcast of Encyclopedia. Find us on Facebook and Twitter.